the Lord of the Rings. We have just finished with the first book. Uh, but of course, that's not how we're referring to it. We've finished book one, part one, and we're now embarking on book one, part two. Um, there are three books. Each of these books split into two parts. Um, again, if you're one of those folks, kind of kind of old school slash, you know, uh, deep in the lore, you may know that technically these are split into six books, but and we're calling it three books, two parts each. We've just finished uh, book one, part one. Book one, Part two, chapter one, is what we're going to be reading today. That one is called Many Meetings. And um, uh, with that, I think a bit of review is appropriate. How did we get here? How did we get to Many Meetings? Well, as our long-form review, Frodo has taken upon himself, um, uh, with the help and prompting of Gandalf, uh, with the aid of some of his hobbit friends, uh, the 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 journey taking a journey um to get the ring this ring that we now understand is much more powerful than bilbo ever realized when he picked it up all those years ago during the events of the hobbit this ring is the one ring to rule them all a ring of power designed to sort of lord over other rings of power uh secretly distributed out through middle earth it is a ring which if it fell into the hands of the dark lord well the entirety of Middle-earth would likely be lost. A, a powerful weapon for the enemy. As they leave the Shire, Frodo and his companions intend to meet up very quickly with Gandalf, but they don't see him. Their various meeting places where they were supposed to meet with Gandalf, he continues to be nowhere to be found. So they just continue down the road. They meet strange people like uh, uh, Tom Bombadil, uh, some elves, which thrills Sam, uh, Frodo's traveling companion and gardener. Um, as we proceed on, we get to the town of Bree. It's a large town, as towns go, um, and uh, you know, part of a, a a loose, not really a kingdom of men, just a uh, a big land where humans kind of congregate here. And uh, this is where we were ultimately supposed to meet Gandalf. If nowhere else, we'll meet Gandalf here. And there's still no sign of Gandalf. All this while, Frodo has been pursued by these black-clad riders, uh, looking for him, asking over the name of Baggins and the Ring. And they meet someone strange. Sam is very hesitant at first, but we meet Strider, also known as Aragorn. Strider is a ranger, one of these folks who wanders the Outlands, and Strider, fortunately, knows the Outlands very well, these wild places, and uh, he is able to bring our little party away from Bree and continue on this mission uh, without spending too much time on the road. Unfortunately, they do get sort of ambushed, uh, or, or rather, they, they lie in wait and their, their hunters find them, these black-clad riders do catch up and manage to stab Frodo in the shoulder with a terrible weapon before retreating. That's all the damage that they do, but quickly Aragorn realizes this damage from this particular knife is designed to poison Frodo, um, sort of poison his soul as much as his body, and he will soon die if not taken into the care of powerful healers. Well, there's only one place nearby where you can find something like that, and that's Rivendell. So they have to make quickly for Rivendell. They manage to get to the river before the black-clad riders catch up with them once more. Here on the edge of the river, uh, with Rivendell just off in the distance, uh, finally, we meet with uh, another elf, and uh, between 
his power and Aragorn and uh, the other hobbits doing what they can, they manage to get Frodo just across the river before he passes out as he watches the river itself come alive and sweep the black clad riders away. That's where we're at. As Frodo once again awakens, did he make it away? Have the black clad riders really gone? And is the ring safe? Lord of the Rings, Book One, The Fellowship of the Ring, Part Two, Chapter One, Many Meetings. Frodo woke and found himself lying in bed. At first he thought that he had slept late after a long, unpleasant dream that still hovered on the edge of memory. Or perhaps he had been ill. But the ceiling looked strange. It was flat, and it had dark beams richly carved. He lay a little while longer, looking at patches of sunlight upon the wall and listening to the sound of a waterfall. Where am I? And what is the time? He said aloud to the ceiling. They're in the house of Elrond, and it is ten o'clock in the morning, said a voice. It is the morning of October the 24th, if you want to know. Gandalf! cried Frodo, sitting up. There was the old wizard, sitting in a chair by the open window. Yes, he said. I am here, and you are lucky to be here, too, after all the absurd things you've done since you left home. Frodo lay down again. He felt too comfortable and peaceful to argue. And in any case, he did not think he would get the better of an argument. He was fully awake now, and the memory of his journey was returning. The disastrous shortcut through the old forest, the accident at the prancing pony, and his madness in putting on the ring in the dell under Weathertop. While he was thinking of all the things and trying in vain to bring his memory down to his arriving in Rivendell, there was a long silence, broken only by the soft puffs of Gandalf's pipe as he blew white smoke rings out of the window. "'Where is Sam?' Frodo asked at length. "'And are the others all right?' "'Yes, they're all safe and sound,' answered Gandalf. "'Sam was here until I sent him off to get some rest, about half an hour ago.' "'What happened at the ford?' said Frodo. "'It all seemed so dim somehow, and it still does.' "'Yes, yes it would.' You were beginning to fade, answered Gandalf. The wound was overcoming you at last. A few more hours and you would have been beyond our aid. But you have some strength in you, my dear Hobbit, as you showed in the barrow. That was touch and go, perhaps the most dangerous moment of all. I wish you could have held out at Weathertop. 
You seem to know a great deal already, said Frodo. I've not spoken to the others about the barrow. At first it was too horrible. And afterward there were other things to think about. How did you know about it? You have talked long in your sleep, Frodo, said Gandalf gently. And it has not been hard for me to read your mind and memory. Do not worry. Although I said absurd just now, I did not mean it. I think well of you, and of the others. It is no small feat to have come so far, and through such dangers, still bearing the ring. We should never have done it without Strider, said Frodo. But we needed you. I did not know what to do without you. I was delayed, said Gandalf. And that nearly proved our ruin. And yet I am not sure. It may have been better so. I wish you would tell me what happened. All in good time. You're not supposed to talk or worry about anything today, by Elrond's orders. But talking would stop me thinking and wondering, which are quite as tiring, said Frodo. I'm wide awake now, and I remember so many things that want explaining. Why were you delayed? You ought to at least tell me that. You will soon hear all that you wish to know, said Gandalf. We shall have a council as soon as you are well enough. At the moment, I will say only that I was held captive. You? cried Frodo. Yes, I, Gandalf the Grey, said the wizard solemnly. There are many powers in the world for evil and for good. Some are greater than I am. Against some I have not been measured, but my time is coming. The Morgul Lord and his black riders have come forth. War is preparing. Then you knew of the riders already, before I met them? Yes, I knew of them. Indeed, I spoke of them once to you. For the Black Riders are the Ringwraiths, the nine servants of the Lord of the Rings. But I did not know that they had arisen once again, or I should have fled with you at once. I heard news of them only after I left you in June. But that story must wait. For the moment, we have been saved from disaster by Aragorn. Yes, said Frodo. It was Strider that saved us. Yet I was afraid of him at first. Sam never quite trusted him, I think. Not at any rate until we met Glorfindel. Gandalf smiled. I've heard all about Sam, he said. He has got no more doubts now. I'm glad, said Frodo, for I've become very fond of Strider. Well, fond is not the right word. I mean he is dear to me. Though he is strange, and grim at times. In fact, he reminds me often of you. I didn't know that any of the big people were like that. I thought... Well, I thought they were just big and rather stupid. Kind and stupid like Butterbur, or stupid and wicked like Bill Fernie. But then again, we don't know much about men in the Shire, except perhaps the Brelanders. You don't know much even about them if you think old Barlamin is stupid said Gandalf. He is wise enough on his own ground. He thinks less than he talks, and slower, 
Yet he can see through a brick wall in time, as they say in Bree. But there are few left in Middle-earth like Aragorn, son of Arathorn. The race of kings from over the sea is nearly at an end. It may be that this war of the ring will be their last adventure. Do you really mean that Strider is one of the people of the old kings? said Frodo in wonder. I thought they had all vanished long ago. I, I thought he was only a ranger. Only a ranger, cried Gandalf. My dear Frodo, that is just what the rangers are. The last remnant in the north of the great people, the men of the west. They have helped me before, and I shall need their help in the days to come. For we have reached Rivendell, but the ring is not at rest yet. I suppose not, said Frodo, but so far my only thought has been to get here, and I hope I shan't have to go any further. It's a very pleasant place to just rest. I've had a month of exile and adventure, and I find it I've had about as much as I want. He fell silent and shut his eyes. After a while he spoke again. I've been reckoning, he said, and I can't bring up the total to October the 24th. It ought to be the 21st. We must have reached the ford by the 20th. You've talked and reckoned more than is good for you, said Gandalf. How do the side and the shoulder feel now? I don't know, Frodo answered. They don't feel at all, which is an improvement, but... He made an effort. I... I can move my arm a little. Yes, it's coming back to life. It's not cold, he added, touching his left hand with his right. Good, said Gandalf. It is mending fast. You will soon be sound again. Elrond has cured you. He has tended you for days ever since you were brought in. Days, said Frodo. Well, four nights and three days, to be exact. The elves brought you from the ford on the night of the 20th, and that is where you lost count. We have been terribly anxious, and Sam has hardly left your side, day or night, except to run messages. Elrond is a master of healing, but the weapons of our enemy are deadly. To tell you the truth, I had very little hope, for I suspected that there was some fragment of the blade still in the closed wound. But it could not be found until last night. Then Elrond removed a splinter. It was deeply buried, and it was working inwards. Frodo shuddered, remembering the cruel knife with the notched blade that had vanished in Strider's hands. Don't be alarmed, said Gandalf. It is gone now. It is melted, and it seems that hobbits fade very reluctantly. I have known strong warriors of the big people who would quickly have been overcome by that splinter which you bore for seventeen days. What would they have done to me? asked Frodo. What were the riders trying to do? Mm. They tried to... Pierce your heart with a Morgul knife, which remains in the wound. 
If they had succeeded, you'd have become like they are, only weaker and under their command. He would have become a wraith under the dominion of the Dark Lord, and he would have tormented you for trying to keep his ring, if any greater torment were possible than being robbed of it and seeing it on his hand. Thank goodness I didn't realise the horrible danger, said Frodo faintly. I was mortally afraid, of course. But if I had known more, I should not have dared even to move. It's a marvel that I escaped. Yes, fortune or fate have helped you, said Gandalf, not to mention courage. For your heart was not touched, and only your shoulder was pierced, and that was because you resisted to the last. But it was a terribly narrow shave, so to speak. You were in the greatest peril when you wore the ring. For then you were half in the wraith world yourself, and they might have seized you. You could see them, and they could see you. I know, said Frodo. They were terrible to behold. But why could we all see their horses? Because they are real horses, just as the black robes are real robes that they wear to give shape to their nothingness, when they have got dealings with the living. Why do these black horses endure such riders? All other animals are terrified when they draw near, even the elf horse of Glorfindel. The dogs howl and the geese scream at them. Because the horses are born and bred to the service of the Dark Lord in Mordor. Not all his servants and chattels are wraiths. There are orcs and trolls, there are wargs and werewolves. And there have been and still are many men warriors and kings, that walk alive under the sun, and yet are under his sway, and their number is growing daily. Okay, just to pause for a second. Wargs and werewolves? Is this the only time that we hear about werewolves ever in this series? <laughs> That's pretty offhanded. Hold on. Ooh, got some dusking around. Not quite. What about Rivendell? And the elves? Is Rivendell safe? Yes. At present. Until all else is conquered. The elves may fear the Dark Lord, and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. And here, in Rivendell, there live still some of his chief foes, the elven wise, lords of the Eldar from beyond the farthest seas, they do not fear the ringwraiths, for those who have dwelt in the blessed realms live at once in both worlds, and against both the seen and the unseen they have great power. I thought that I saw a white figure that shone and did not grow dim like the others. Was that... was that Glorfindel, then? Yes. You saw him for a moment, as he is upon the other side. One of the mighty of the firstborn, he is an elf lord of a house of princes. Indeed, there is a power in Rivendell to withstand the might of Mordor for a while, and elsewhere other powers still dwell. There is power, too, of another kind in the Shire, but all such places will soon become islands under siege if things go on the way that they are going. The Dark Lord is still putting forth all his strength. 
Still, he said, standing suddenly up and sticking out his chin, while his beard went stiff and straight like a bristling wire. You must keep up our courage. You will be well soon enough, if I do not talk you to death. You are in Rivendell, and you need not worry about anything for the present. I haven't any courage to keep up, said Frodo, but I'm not worried at the moment. Just give me news of my friends, and tell me the end of the affair at the ford, as I keep on asking, and I shall be content for the moment. After that I shall have another sleep, I think, but I shan't be able to close my eyes until you've finished the story for me. Gandalf moved his chair to the bedside and took a good look at Frodo. The color had come back to his face, and his eyes were clear and fully awake and aware. He was smiling, and there seemed to be little wrong with him. But to the wizard's eye, there was a faint change, just a hint, as if of transparency about him, and especially about the left hand that lay outside upon the coverlet. Still, that must be expected, said Gandalf to himself. He's not yet half through, and to what he will come in the end, not even Elrond can foretell. Not to evil, I think. He may become like a glass, filled with a clear light for eyes to see that can. You look splendid, he said aloud. I will risk a brief tale without consulting Elrond. But quite brief, mind you, and then you must sleep again. This is what happened, as far as I can gather. The riders made straight for you as soon as you fled. They did not need the guidance of their horses any longer. You had become visible to them, being already on the threshold of their world. Also, the ring drew them. Your friends sprang aside off the road, or they would have been ridden down. They knew that nothing could save you if the white horse could not. The riders were too swift to overtake and too many to oppose. On foot, even Glorfindel and Aragorn could not withstand all the nine at once. When the ring race swept by, your friends ran up behind. Close to the ford, there is a small hollow beside the road masked by a few stunted trees. There, they hastily kindled fire, for Glorfindel knew that a flood would come down if the riders tried to cross, and then he would have to deal with any that were left on his side of the river. The moment the flood appeared, he rushed out, followed by Aragorn and the others, with flaming brands. Caught between fire and water, and seeing an elf-lord revealed in his wrath, they were dismayed, and their horses were stricken with madness. Three were carried away by the first assault of the flood. The others were now hurled into the water by their horses, and overwhelmed. And is that the end of the Black Riders? asked Frodo. No, said Gandalf. Their horses must have perished, and without them they are crippled. But the ring race themselves cannot so easily be destroyed. However, there is nothing more to fear from them at present. Your friends crossed after the flood and passed when they found you lying. 
Your friends crossed after the flood had passed, and they found you lying upon your face at the top of the bank with a broken sword under you. The horse was standing guard beside you. You were pale and cold, and they feared that you were dead, or worse. Elrond's folk met them carrying you slowly toward Rivendell. "'Who made the flood?' asked Frodo. "'Elrond commanded it,' answered Gandalf. "'The river of this valley is under his power, "'and it will rise in anger when he has had great need to bar the ford. "'As soon as the captain of the ring-race rode into the water, "'the flood was released. "'If I may say so, I added a few touches of my own. "'You may not have noticed, but some of the waves took the form of great white horses "'with shining white riders.' and there were many rolling and grinding boulders. For a moment I was afraid that we had let loose too fierce a wrath, and the flood would get out of hand and wash you all away. There is great vigour in the waters that come down from the snows of the misty mountains. Yes. Yes, it, it's all coming back to me now, said Frodo. The tremendous roaring. I thought I was drowning with my friends and enemies and all, but now we are safe. Gandalf looked quickly at Frodo, but he had shut his eyes. Yes, you are safe for the present. Soon there will be feasting and merrymaking to celebrate the victory at the ford of Bruinen, and you will all be there in places of honour. Splendid, said Frodo. It's wonderful that Elrond and Glorfindel and such great lords, not to mention Strider, should take all so much trouble and show me so much kindness. Well, there are many reasons why they should, said Gandalf, smiling. I am one good reason. The ring is another. You are the ring-bearer. And you are the heir of Bilbo, the ring-finder. <laughs> oh, dear Bilbo, said Frodo sleepily. I wonder where he is. I wish he was here and could hear all about it. He would have made him laugh. <laughs> the cow jumped over the moon. <sighs> and the poor old troll. And with that, he fell fast asleep. Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. That house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house, whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best, or a pleasant mixture of them all. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. As the evening drew on, Frodo woke up again, and he found that he no longer felt in need of rest or sleep, but had a mind for food and drink, and probably for singing and storytelling afterward. He got out of bed and discovered that his arm was already nearly as useful again as it had ever been. He found laid ready clean garments of green cloth that fitted him excellently. Looking in a mirror, he was startled to see a much thinner reflection of himself than he remembered. 
It looked remarkably like the young nephew of Bilbo who used to go tramping with his uncle in the Shire. But the eyes looked out at him thoughtfully. Yes, you have seen a thing or two since you last peeped out of a looking glass, he said to his reflection. But now, for a merry meeting. He stretched out his arms and whistled a tune. At that moment, there was a knock on the door, and Sam came in. He ran to Frodo and took his left hand, awkwardly and shyly. He stroked it gently and then blushed and turned hastily away. Hello, Sam, said Frodo. It's warm, said Sam. Mean in your hand, Mr. Frodo. It's felt so cold through the long nights. But glory and trumpets, he cried, turning round again with shining eyes and dancing on the floor. It's fine to see you up and yourself again, sir. Gandalf asked me to come down and see if you were ready to come, and I thought he was just choking. <laughs> I am ready, said Frodo. Let's go and look for the rest of the party. I can take you to him, sir, said Sam. It's a big house, this. Very peculiar. Though he's a bit more to discover, and no knowing what you'll find round a corner. And elves, sir. Elves here, elves there. Some like kings, terrible and splendid. Some as merry as children. And the music... And the singing? Not that I got the time or the heart for much listening since we got here. But now I'm getting to know some of the ways of the place. I know what you've been doing, Sam, said Frodo, taking his arm. But you shall be married tonight, and listen to your heart's content. Come on, guide me round the corners. Sam led him along several passages and down many steps, and out into a high garden above the steep bank of the river. He found his friends sitting on a porch on the side of the house looking east. Shadows had fallen in the valley below, but there was still light on the faces of the mountains far above. The air was warm, the sound of running and falling water was loud, and the evening was filled with a faint scent of trees and flowers, as if summer still lingered in Elrond's gardens. Hurray! cried Pippin, springing up. Here's our noble cousin. Meet with Frodo, the Lord of the Ring. Hush! said Gandalf from the shadows at the back of the porch. Evil things do not come into this valley, but all the same. We should not name them. The Lord of the Ring is not Frodo, but the master of the Dark Tower of Mordor, whose power is again stretching out over the world. We are sitting in a fortress. Outside, it is getting dark. Gandalf has been seeing many cheerful things like that said Pippin. He thinks I need keeping in order, but it seems impossible somehow. Do you feel gloomy or depressed in this place? I feel that I could sing if I knew the right song for the occasion. I feel a little bit like singing myself, said Frodo, though at the moment I feel more like eating and drinking. Oh, that'll soon be cured, said Pippin. You've shown your usual cunning in getting up just in time for a meal. More than a meal, a feast, said Mary. As soon as Gandalf reported that you were recovered, the preparations began. He had hardly finished speaking when they were summoned to the hall by the ringing of many bells. The hall of Elrond's house was filled with folk, elves for the most part, though there were a few guests of other sorts. Elrond, as was his custom, sat in a great chair at the end of the long table upon the dais, and next to him on one side sat Glorfindel, and on the other sat Gandalf. Frodo looked at them in wonder, for he had never before seen Elrond, 
of whom so many tales spoke. And as they sat upon his right hand and his left, Glorfindel and even Gandalf, whom he thought he knew so well, were revealed as lords of dignity and power. Gandalf was shorter in stature than the other two, but his long white hair, his sweeping silver beard, and his broad shoulders made him look like some wise king of ancient legend. In his aged face, under great snowy brows, his dark eyes were set like coals that could leap suddenly into fire. Glorfindel was tall and straight. His hair was full of shining gold, his face fair and young and fearless and full of joy. His eyes were bright and keen, and his voice like music. On his brow sat wisdom, and in his hand was strength. The face of Elrond was ageless, neither old nor young, though in it was written the memory of a great many things, both glad and sorrowful. His hair was dark as the shadows of twilight, and upon it was set a circlet of silver. His eyes were gray as a clear evening, and in them was a light like the light of stars. Venerable he seemed, as a king crowned with many winters, and yet, and yet hale as a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. He was the lord of Rivendell and mighty among both elves and men. In the middle of the table, against the woven cloths upon the wall, there was a chair under a canopy, and there sat a lady fair to look upon. And so like was she in form of womanhood to Elrond that Frodo guessed she was one of his close kindred. Young she was, and yet not so. The braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost. Her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth, and the light of stars was in her bright eyes. Gray as a cloudless night, yet queenly she looked, and thought and knowledge were in her glance as of one who has known a great many things that years bring. Above her brow her head was covered in a cap of silver lace, netted with small gems, glittering white, but her soft gray raiment had no ornament, save a girdle of leaves wrought in silver. So it was that Frodo saw her whom few mortals had yet seen, Arwen, daughter of Elrond, in whom it is said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again and she was called Undomiel, for she was the Evan star of her people. Long she had been in the land of her mother's kin, in Lorien, beyond the mountains, and was but lately returned to Rivendell to her father's house. But her brothers, Eladan and Elrohir, were out upon errantry, for they rode off in a far afield with the rangers of the north, forgetting never their mother's torment in the dens of the orcs. Such loveliness in living thing Frodo had never seen before, nor imagined in his mind, and he was both surprised and abashed to find that he had a seat at Elrond's table among all these folk so high and fair. Though he had a suitable chair, and was raised upon several cushions, he felt very small, and rather out of place. But that feeling quickly passed. The feast was merrier and the food all his hunger could desire. It was some time before he looked around him again, or even turned to his neighbors. He looked first for his friends. Sam had begged to be allowed to wait upon his master, but had been told that, for this time, he was a guest of honor. Frodo could see him now, sitting with Pippin and Mary at the upper end of one of the side tables, close to the dais. He could see no sign of Strider. 
Next to Frodo, on his right, sat a dwarf of important appearance, richly dressed. His beard, very long and forked, was white, nearly as white as the snow-white cloth of his garments. He wore a silver belt, and round his neck hung a chain of silver and diamonds. Frodo stopped eating to look at him. "'Welcome and well met,' said the dwarf, turning toward him. Then he actually rose from his seat and bowed. "'Gloin, at your service,' he said, and bowed still lower. "'Frodo Baggins, at your service and your family's,' said Frodo correctly, rising in his surprise and scattering his cushions. "'Am I right in guessing that you are the Gloin, one of the twelve companions of the great Thorin Oakenshield?' "'Quite right,' answered the dwarf, gathering up the cushions and courteously assisting Frodo back into his seat. "'And I do not ask, for I have already been told that you are the kinsman and adopted heir of the great friend Bilbo the Renowned. Allow me to congratulate you upon your recovery.' "'Thank you very much,' said Frodo. "'You've had some very strange adventures, I hear,' said Glowen. I wonder greatly what brings four hobbits on so long a journey. Nothing like it has happened since Bilbo came with us. But perhaps I should not inquire too closely, since Elrond and Gandalf do not seem disposed to talk of this. I think we will not speak of it. Not yet, at least, said Frodo politely. He guessed that even in Elrond's house the matter of the ring was not one for casual talk, and in any case he wished to forget his troubles for a time. "'But I am equally curious,' he added, "'to learn what brings so important a dwarf so far from the Lonely Mountain.' Glowen looked at him. "'If you have not heard, I think that we will not speak of that yet either. Master Elrond will summon us all ere long, I believe.' Then we shall all hear many things. But there is much else that may be told. Throughout the rest of the meal they talked together, but Frodo listened more than he spoke, for the news of the Shire, apart from the ring, seemed small and far away and unimportant. While Glowen had much to tell of events in the northern regions of the Wilderland, Frodo learned that Grimbeorn, the old son of Beorn, was now the lord of many sturdy men and to their land between the mountains and Mirkwood neither orc nor wolf dared to go. Indeed, said Glowen. If it were not for the Beornlings, a passage from Dale to Rivendell might long ago have become impossible. They're valiant men, and keep open the high pass in the ford of Carrick. But their tolls are high, he added with a shake of his head. And like Beorn of old, they're not over-fond of dwarves. Still, they're trusty, and that's much in these days. Nowhere are there any men so friendly to us as the men of Dale. They're a good folk, the Bardings. The grandson of Bard the Bowman rules them. Brand, son of Bane, son of Bard. He's a strong king and his realm now reaches far south and east of Esgaroth. "'And what of your own people?' asked Frodo. "'There is much to tell, good and bad. "'Yet it's mostly good. "'We have so far been fortunate, though, "'we do not escape the shadow of these times. 
If you really wish to hear of us, I will tell you tidings gladly, but you stop me when you're weary. Dwarf tongues run on when speaking of their handiwork, so they say. And with that, Glowin embarked upon a long account of the doings of the Dwarf Kingdom. He was delighted to have found so polite a listener, for Frodo showed no sign of weariness and made no attempt to change the subject, though actually he soon got rather lost among the strange names of the people and places that he had never heard of before. He was interested, however, to hear that Dayan was still king under the mountain, and was now old, having passed his 250th year, venerable and fabulously rich. Of the ten companions who had survived the Battle of the Five Armies, seven were still with him. Dwalin, Glowin, Dory, Nori, Biffer, Bofer, and Bomber. Bomber was now so fat he could not move himself from his couch to his chair at the table, and it took six young dwarves to lift him. And what has become of Balin and Ori and Owen? asked Frodo. A shadow passed over Glowin's face. He did not know, he answered. It's largely on account of Balin that I have come to ask the guidance of those that dwell in Rivendell. But tonight let us speak of merrier things. Glowin began then to talk of the works of his people, telling Frodo about their great labors in Dale and under the mountain. We've done well, he said, but in metalwork we cannot rival the works of our fathers. Many of those secrets were lost. We make good armor and keen swords, but we cannot again make mail or blade to match those that were made before the dragon came. Only in mining and building have we surpassed the old days. You should see the waterways of Dale, Frodo, and the fountains and the pools. You should see the stone-paved roads of many colors, and the halls and cavernous streets under the mountain with arches carved like trees, and the terraces and towers upon the mountain sides. Then you would see that we have not been idle. I will come and see them, if ever I can, said Frodo. How surprised Bilbo would have been to see all the changes in the desolation of Smog. Glowin looked at Frodo and smiled. You were very fond of Bilbo, were you not? he asked. Yes, answered Frodo. I'd rather see him than all the towers and palaces in the world. At length the feast came to an end. Elrond and Arwen rose and went down the hall, and the company followed them in due order. The doors were thrown open, and they went across a wide passage and through other doors, and came into a further hall. In it were no tables, but a bright fire was burning on a great hearth between the carven pillars upon either side. Frodo found himself walking with Gandalf. "'This is the Hall of Fire,' said the wizard. "'Here you will hear a great many songs and tales.' if you can keep awake. But except on high days, it usually stands empty and quiet, and people who come here wish for peace and thought. There is always a fire here, all the year round, but there is little other light. As Elrond entered and went toward the seat prepared for him, elvish minstrels began to make sweet music. Slowly the hall filled, and Frodo looked with delight upon the many fair faces that were gathered together, the golden firelight playing upon them and shimmering in their hair. 
Suddenly he noticed, not far from the further end of the fire, a small, dark figure seated upon a stool with his back propped against a pillar. Beside him on the ground was a drinking cup and some bread. Frodo wondered whether he was ill, if people were ever ill in Rivendell, and he had been unable to come to the feast. His head seemed sunk deep in sleep upon his breast, and a fold of his dark cloak was drawn over his face. Elrond went forward and stood beside the silent figure. Awake, little master, he said with a smile, and then returning to Frodo, he beckoned to him. Now, at last, the hour has come that you have wished for, Frodo, he said. Here is a friend that you have long missed. The dark figure raised its head and uncovered its face. Bilbo! cried Frodo with sudden recognition, and he sprang forward. Oh, Frodo, my lad, said Bilbo. So, you've got here at last. I hoped you would manage it. Well, well, well. So, all of this feasting is in your honour, I hear. I hope that you enjoyed yourself. Why weren't you there? cried Frodo, and why haven't I been allowed to see you before? Um, because you were asleep. I've seen a good deal of you. I've sat by your side with Sam each day. But as for the feast, I don't go in for such things much now. And I had something else to do. What were you doing? I was sitting and thinking. I do a lot of that nowadays, and this is the best place to do it, as a rule. Ah, wake up indeed, he said, cocking an eye at Elrond. There was a bright twinkle in it, and no sign of sleepiness that Frodo could see. Wake up. I was not asleep, Master Elrond, if you want to know. You've all come out of your feast too soon, and you've disturbed me. I was in the middle of thinking up a song. I was stuck over a line or two and thinking about them, but I don't suppose I shall now ever get them right. There will be such a good deal of singing that the ideas will be driven clean out of my head. I shall have to get my friend the Dunadan to help me. Where is he? Elrond laughed. He shall be found, he said, and then you two shall go into a corner and finish your task, and we will hear it and judge it before we end our merrymaking. Messengers were sent to find Bilbo's friend, though none knew where he was or why he had not been present at the feast. In the meanwhile, Frodo and Bilbo sat side by side, and Sam came quickly and placed himself near them. They talked together in soft voices, oblivious of the mirth and music in the hall about them. Bilbo had not much to say of himself. When he had left Hobbiton, he had wandered off aimlessly, along the road or in the country on either side, but somehow he had steered all the time toward Rivendell. "'I got here without much adventure,' he said, and after a rest I went on with the dwarves to Dale, my last journey. I shan't travel again. Old Balin has gone away. And then I came back here, and here I have been. I've done this and that, I've written some more of my book, and of course I make up a few songs. They sing them occasionally, just to please me, I think, for of course they aren't really good enough for Rivendell. And I listen, and I think. Time doesn't seem to pass here. It, it just is. <laughs> A remarkable place, altogether. 
I hear all kinds of news, all over the mountains and out of the south, but hardly anything from the Shire. I heard about the ring, of course. Uh, Gandalf has been here often, and not that he has told me a great deal, but he's become closer than ever over these last few years. The Dunedan has told me more. Fancy that ring of mine causing such a disturbance. It, uh, it's a pity that Gandalf did not find out more sooner. I could have brought the thing myself here years ago without so much trouble. I've thought several times of going back to Hobbiton for it, but but I'm, I'm getting old, <laughs> and they, they wouldn't let me. Gandalf and Elrond, I mean, they, they seem to think that the enemy is looking high and low for me, and would make mincemeat of me if he caught me tottering about in the wild. And Gandalf said, The ring has passed on, Bilbo. It would do you no good, nor the others, if you were to try and meddle with it again. It's an odd, odd sort of remark, just like Gandalf. But he said that he was looking after you, so I, 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 I let things be. I am frightfully glad to see you safe and sound. He paused and looked at Frodo doubtfully. Have, um, have you got it here? He asked in a whisper. I can't help feeling curious, you know, after all that I've heard. I should very much like to just peep at it again. Yes, I've got it, answered Frodo, feeling a strange reluctance. It looks just the same as it ever did. Well, I, I should like to just see it for a moment, said Bilbo. When he had dressed, Frodo had found, while he slept, the ring had been hung about his neck on a new chain, light and strong. Slowly, he drew it out. Bilbo put out his hand, but Frodo quickly drew back the ring. To his distress and amazement, he found that he was no longer looking at Bilbo. A shadow seemed to have fallen between them, and through it he found himself eyeing a little wrinkled creature with a hungry face and bony, groping hands. He felt a desire to strike him. The music and singing around them seemed to falter, and a silence fell. Bilbo looked quickly at Frodo's face and passed his hand across his eyes. I, I, I understand now, he said. Put it away. Put it away. I am sorry. I'm sorry that you've come in for this burden. I'm just, oh, I'm sorry about everything. Don't adventures ever have an end? I, I, I suppose not. Someone else always has to carry on the story. Well, it, it can't be helped. I wonder if it's I wonder if it's any good now trying to finish my book. Oh, but but don't don't let's worry about it now. Let's let's have some real news. Don't tell, tell me about the Shire. Frodo hid the ring away, and the shadow passed, leaving hardly a shred of memory. The light and music of Rivendell was all about him again. Bilbo smiled and laughed happily. Every item of news from the Shire that Frodo could tell, aided and corrected now and again by Sam, was of the greatest interest to him, from the felling of the least tree to the pranks of the smallest child in Hobbiton. They were so deep in the doings of the Four Farthings that they did not notice the arrival of a man, 
clad in dark green cloth. For many minutes he stood looking down at them with a smile. Suddenly, Bilbo looked up. Ah, here you are at last, Dunedan, he cried. Strider, said Frodo, you seem to have a lot of names. Well, Strider's one that I, I haven't heard before. Anyway, said Bilbo, what do you call him that for? They call me that in Bree, said Strider, laughing, and that is how I was introduced to him. And why do you call him Dunedan? said Frodo. The Dunadan, said Bilbo. He, he's often called that here, but I, I thought that you knew enough Elvish at least to know Dunadan. Man of the West, Numenorian. But this is not the time for lessons, he turned to Strider. Where have you been, my friend? Why weren't you at the feast? The Lady Arwen was there. Strider looked down at Bilbo gravely. I know he said, but often I must put mirth aside. Eladan and Elroy here have returned out of the wild, unlooked for, and they had tidings that I wished to hear at once. Well, my dear fellow, said Bilbo, now you've heard the news, can't you spare me a moment? I want your help in something urgent. Elrond says this song of mine is to be finished before the end of the evening, and I am stuck. Let's go off into a corner and polish it up. Strider smiled. Come on, then, he said. Let me hear it. Frodo was left to himself for a while, for Sam had fallen asleep. He was alone and felt rather forlorn, though all about him the folk of Rivendell were gathered. But those near him were silent, intent upon the music of the voices and the instruments, and they gave no heed to anything else. Frodo began to listen. At first the beauty of the melodies and of the interwoven words in elven tongues, even though he understood them little, held him in a spell as soon as he began to attend them. Almost it seemed that the words took shape, and visions of far lands and bright things he had never yet imagined opened out before him, and the fire-lit hall became like a golden mist above the seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. Then the enchantment became more and more dreamlike, until he felt that an endless river of swelling gold and silver were flowing over him, too multitudinous for its pattern to be comprehended. It became part of the throbbing air about him, and it drenched and drowned him. Swiftly he sank under its shining weight into a deep realm of sleep. There he wandered long at a dream of music that turned into running water, and then suddenly into a voice. It seemed to be the voice of Bilbo chanting verses, faint at first, and then clearer ran the words. Yarendil was a mariner that tarried in the Avernian. He built a boat of timber felled in Nimbrathil to journey in. Her sails he wove of silver fair, of silver were her lanterns made, her prow he fashioned like a swan, and light upon her banners laid. In panoply of ancient kings, in chained rings he armoured him. His shining shield was scored with runes to ward all wounds and harm from him. His bow was made of dragonhorn, his arrows shorn of ebony, of silver was his habergeon, and scabbard of chalcedony. 
his sword of steel was valiant, of adamant his helmet tore, an eagle plume upon his crest, upon his breast an emerald. Beneath the moon and under star he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands, from gnashing jaws of narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hill, from nether heats and burning waste he turned in haste and roving still on starless waters far astray. At last he came to night of naught and passed, and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. The winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled from west to east, and errandless unheralded he homeward sped. There flying Elwing came to him, and flame was in the darkness lit, more bright than light of diamond, the fire upon her carcanet. The Silmarel she bound on him, and crowned him with the living light, and dauntless then with burning brow she turned his prow, and in the night, from other world beyond the sea, there strong and free a storm arose, a light of power in Tarmanel, by paths that seldom mortal goes. His boat it bore with biting breath, as might of death across the grey and long-forsaken seas distressed, from east to west he passed away. Through ever night he back was borne, on black and roaring waves that ran, o'er leagues unlit and foundered shores that drowned before the days began, until he heard on strands of pearl, where ends the world the music long, Wherever foaming billows roll, the yellow gold and jewels wan. He saw the mountain silent rise, where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor and Eldamar, beheld afar beyond the seas. A wanderer escaped from night. To Haven White he came at last, to Elven home, the green and fair, where keen the air, where pale as glass, beneath the hill, Ilmarin. A glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mere. He tarried there from errantry, and melodies they taught to him, and sages old him marvels told, and harps of gold they brought to him. They clothed him then in elven white, and seven lights before him sent, as through the Calasirian to hidden lands forlorn he went. He came unto the timeless halls, where shining fall the countless years, and endless reigns the elder king, in Ilmarin, on mountain sheer. And words unheard were spoken then, of folk of men and elven kin, beyond the world where visions showed, forbid to those that dwell therein. A ship, then, knew they built for him of mithril and of elven glass, with shining prow, no shaven oar nor sail she bore on silver mast, the silmaril as lantern light and banner bright with living flame, to gleam thereon by Elbereth herself to set, who hither came, and wings immortal made for him, and laid on him undying doom, to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun and light of moon. From ever even's lofty hills, where softly silver fountains fall, his wings him bore a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. 
from world's end, then he turned away, and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying and burning as an island star. On high above the mists he came, a distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn, where grey the Norland waters run. And over Middle-earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days, in years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade, an orbed star, to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. For ever still a herald on an errand that should never rest, do bear his shining lamp afar, the Flamurfer of Westerness. The chanting ceased. Frodo opened his eyes and saw that Bilbo was seated on his stool with a circle of listeners who were smiling and applauding. Now we'd better have it again, said an elf. Bilbo got up and bowed. I'm flattered, Lindir, he said, but it would be too tiring to repeat it all. Not too tiring for you, the elves answered laughing. You know that you're never really tired of reciting your own verses, but really we cannot answer your question at one hearing. What? cried Bilbo. You, you can't tell which parts were mine and which were the Dunadans. It is not easy for us to tell the difference between two mortals, said the elf. "'Nonsense, Lindy,' snorted Bilbo. "'If you can't distinguish between a man and a hobbit, "'your judgment is poorer than I imagined. "'They're as different as peas and apples.' "'Maybe. "'To sheep, other sheep no doubt appear different,' laughed Lindy. "'Or to shepherds. "'But mortals have not been our study. "'We have had other business.' "'I won't argue with you,' said Bilbo. "'I'm sleepy after so much... "'music and singing. "'I'll leave you to guess if you want to.' "'He got up and came toward Frodo. "'Well, that's over,' he said in a low voice. "'Went off better than I expected. "'I don't often get asked for a second hearing. "'What did you think of it?' "'I'm not going to try and guess,' said Frodo, smiling. "'You needn't,' said Bilbo. "'As a matter of fact, it was all mine.' "'Except that Aragorn insisted upon my putting in a green stone. "'He seemed to think it important. I, I, don't, I don't know why. "'Otherwise, he obviously thought the whole thing rather above my head. "'And he said that if I had the cheek to make verses about Arendil in the house of Elrond, "'it was my affair. Uh, "'I suppose he was right.' "'I don't know,' said Frodo. "'It seemed to me to fit somehow, though I can't explain.' I was half asleep when you began, and it seemed to follow on from something that I was dreaming about. I didn't understand that it was really you speaking until near the end. Yes, it is difficult to keep awake here, until you get used to it, said Bilbo. Not that hobbits would ever acquire quite the elvish appetite for music and poetry and tales. Uh, they seem to like them quite as much as food, or more. Uh, they'll be going on for a long time yet. What do you say to slipping off for somewhere more quiet to talk? Can we? said Frodo. Of course. This is merrymaking, not business. Come and go as you like, as long as you don't make a noise. 
They got up and withdrew quietly into the shadows and made for the doors. Sam they left behind, fast asleep still with a smile upon his face. In spite of his delight in Bilbo's company, Frodo felt a tug of regret as they passed out of the light of the fire. Even as they stepped over the threshold, a single clear voice rose in song. I Frodo halted for a moment, looking back. Elrond was in his chair, and the light was on his face like summer light upon the trees. Near him sat the Lady Arwen. To his surprise, Frodo saw that Aragorn stood beside her. His dark cloak was thrown back, and he seemed to be clad in elven mail, and a star shone upon his breast. They spoke together, and then suddenly it seemed to Frodo that Arwen turned toward him. The light of her eyes fell upon him from afar and pierced his heart. He stood, still enchanted, while the sweet syllables of the elvish song fell like clear jewels of blended word and melody. It is a song of Elbereth, said Bilbo. They will sing that and other songs of the blessed realm many times tonight. Come on. He led Frodo back to his own little room. It opened onto the gardens and looked south across the ravine of the Bruinen. There they sat for some time, looking through the window at the bright stars above the steep climbing woods and talking softly. They spoke no more of the small news of the Shire far away, nor of the dark shadows and perils that encompassed them, but of the fair things they had seen in the world together, of the elves, of the stars, of trees, and of the gentle fall of the bright year in the woods. At last, a knock came upon the door. "'Begging your pardon,' said Sam, putting in his head. "'But I was just wondering if you'd be wanting anything.' "'And begging yours, Sam Gamgee,' replied Bilbo. "'I guess you mean that it is time that your master went to bed.' "'Well, sir, there's a council early tomorrow, I hear, "'and he only just got up for the first time today.' "'Quite right, Sam!' <laughs> <laughs> laughed Bilbo. You can trot off and tell Gandalf he's gone off to bed. Good night, Frodo. Oh, oh, bless me, but it has been good to see you again. There are no folk quite like hobbits, after all, for a real good talk. I'm getting very old, and I begin to wonder if I shall live to see your chapters of our story. Good night. I'll take a walk, I think, 
and look up at the stars of Elbereth in the garden. Sleep well. says he'd like to speak to you about your pony's extended warranty hey orly rose uh, that's very good <laughs> that's quite good oh don't pay no mind to me just old scam gamji hi i'd like to talk to you about your pony's extended warranty if you or a loved one is on it's on medicare i can help you lower your monthly premiums oh boy oh boy very messy. Very messy. Okay, so Scam Gamgee has been added to the... Let's let's officially get Scam Gamgee up on the Uberdale lore uh, wiki, which doesn't exist and probably shouldn't, uh, but go ahead. Uh, Orly Rose says the next chapter is quite lore-heavy. Yes, indeed. So this chapter today was chapter one of book one, part two. Chapter one, many meetings. The next chapter is almost twice as long, which means, of course, we will be we will be um, uh, reading that one all. Uh, it, we're just going to do a one chapter stream once again next time. Um, but that Council of Elrond, yeah, there's going to be a lot going on in that one, isn't there? Just an awful lot going on. Um, <laughs> Freddy Spade says Uberdale lore is not a wiki it's a GeoCities it's yeah it's like it's an old Tumblr page uh, it's a defunct Tumblr page <laughs> oh boy oh boy delightful delightful um my good folks my good good folks uh, I thank you very much for joining me here today um this one's gonna be another kind of like kind of light one you know we only read eight thousand or nine thousand words excuse me uh just just let's see two words short of ninety one hundred words um <laughs> uh the <laughs> so just short of ninety one hundred words uh next week's chapter is gonna have sixteen and a half thousand words um it's gonna be, it's gonna be a hefty one, uh, and then after that we've got a ten thousand. After that, a, a, an eleven thousand, uh, and then after that we've got a five, uh, like a fifty-four hundred and a ninety-four hundred. So those two are gonna get read together. Uh, so chapters five and six, seven and eight, nine and ten, those are all gonna get read in pairs. Um, Tenacious says only nine thousand. That sounds like a lot. It does, but then I mean, like the average chapter over in Harry Potter, which is sort of like how I first started to learn to set my pace. Um, trans rights or human rights the uh, I, I found that that sort of like um, like an average chapter was like maybe three and a half four thousand words um, and the <laughs> J, JT it's over nine thousand um, so that's where I set my pace yeah and so I could read like three of very occasionally four of those in a stream usually it was like two or three and because the, the, the chapters would somehow 
sometimes hover a little bit longer. Ooh, mumble mouth. It's getting to me today. Um, but yeah, I've found that sort of like 12,000 words is like a good, uh, it's a good evening of streaming. Um, that's typically when it's busted into two chapters at the least. Um, because of course breaks take longer and, you know, chatter breaks and everything that that'll add a, a decent bit of time. But um, yeah, 12,000 words is like a good, it's a good number for a, a streamed evening. Um, I do wonder, I do wonder like how this compares to my typical reading rate. I've never really timed them against one another. Um, I don't know that I necessarily like have a, a significantly better uh, retention when I, read, <laughs> when I read aloud. Um, because I'm going to tell you what, especially, oh man, there was a book, it was during book fair. I committed myself because I'd looked up, there was a PDF that I had and apparently it only had part of the story. So when I did my initial word count for how long is the story, uh, shadow over Innsmouth, I looked at that and I said, that is about 6,000 words long. Great. That's like, that fits in. It's like, that's a, that's only half a stream right there. Half of one stream. Shadow over Innsmouth. Actually, hold on. I think I've got it in my, in my spreadsheet here someplace. Where are you? Where are you, you wretched son of a gun? Where are you? <laughs> Come here. I know I've got you someplace. Where is it? Is it in the admin sheet? I've got a count for all of my, here we go. Total word count. Um, Dagon? Dagon? Great. Dagon is 2,200 words. That's like, I could read like three or four of those. If we want to actually like sit and discuss them, uh, then maybe two or three, right? Great. Fantastic. Shadow over Innsmouth. Is it, is it like 6,500 words? No, it's almost 30,000. <laughs> it is not, it is not 6,000 words at all. It's about 30,000 words. It's 27,000 words. Um, and so I had like committed to that one and only the night before did I realize, oh, Oh no. <laughs> Not only that, but Shadow Over Innsmouth contains a disproportionate amount of geography. And I'm not talking like geology, I'm talking about just sort of like like cartography almost like it is it, there's so much description of like and then I turned left down this street and then I turned right on this one and then I saw uh these shadows coming up x street along the ditch and so I jumped into the ditch and then I ran underneath the bridge which lies between this and that and at that point I almost fell asleep while reading aloud that one was a lot that one was a lot shadow over Innsmouth was <laughs> a lot and so all this to say um I spent half of Shadow Over Innsmouth, Shadow's Shadow Over Innsmouth, um, I spent half of that book almost falling asleep while I was reading, and I spent the other half thinking of a tabletop miniatures, like, exploration uh, skirmish game um, uh, while I was reading as well. Uh, I, I definitely, in, in my, in last week, I definitely found myself drifting a little bit, but I've been doing this so much that all, all, all told my point of all this to say is I've done this so often and so much that I can actually spend a lot of time thinking about totally other things while I'm reading aloud. I don't think it's, I don't think it makes for a great read. I think it sort of like brings it down a little bit more monotone. I might make mistakes that I will miss, but I can read aloud and also think about other things uh, in ways that I never would have thought possible before. Um, and it's not in like a great way. I don't enjoy that this is something that I can do now because sometimes it 
happens to me a little bit unexpectedly. But if I feel like I've got like a, if I've had a really good idea, such as a like mythos based kind of Call of Cthulhu tabletop miniatures game uh, where you lead a where you control a little band of investigators uh, trying to trying to defeat monsters as much as you can and perform and prevent rituals. If I get a really good idea like that during the middle of a stream, I will unfortunately <laughs> I will sometimes drift off as I'm reading aloud. Um, again, not something I'm proud of, but it does happen. Oh boy. Orly Rose says, when I read aloud, I retain literally nothing. Um, I am when I uh when I read aloud, I do tend to, but for some reason that, that stuff can also get kind of muddled for me. Um, so unfortunately, it doesn't. The, the retention is not quite as strong as it was back in the past. Um, yeah, just some just an odd little feature of having done this so much. It's a little strange. Um, my goodly folks, what do we think? We are now in the last homely house. We are in the house of Elrond. We are uh, we we are. Joined now, finally, by Gandalf. I've got kind of two big questions I want to talk about. Um, the first one is, why do we think Tolkien decided to have Gandalf be MIA for almost the entirety of the first book? Why do we think that is? What uh, what story storytelling purpose does that serve? That's question number one. Question number two is about all of these people that we are now meeting. Right, we we know that we're sort of on we're we're getting set up for something else. Um, if nothing else, the fact that we're holding this book in our hands and we're about halfway through it. Um, if nothing else, that is a great indicator to us that uh, we are like you know we're we, we're on the verge of something rather than ending something. You know, if, if we were to consider, if we didn't know much else about this story, you could call this like the end of a good book. You know, uh, lots of lots of singing and merrymaking and, uh, you know, meeting up with people that uh, we thought we had said goodbye to maybe forever, like Bilbo. This could feel like the final chapter of its own story, couldn't it? But we know better setups, meetings with people who are going to become important later on. Um, I'm curious how you felt about this chapter. This one's less of a less of a form and uh, and uh, technique question than it is more just sort of getting your reaction. How did you enjoy this? And I also want to know kind of how did you ingest it? When you if you were to give me give I want to I want to hear in six words. In six words, what was this chapter about for you? What were the what were the the what, if you were to try and, and convey to someone what was this chapter in six words? What would it be? And this is because I don't want to necessarily prompt you. In my head, I would I would I would sort of take it in one of two ways. Um, but like, what was this chapter for you? If you had to, if you had to distill it down to six words, I think that's the best way I can get it without sort of leading the witnesses here. Um, uh, but let's talk about question one, right? Question one of why would Tolkien chosen to have kept Gandalf at such a distance for so long? Um, 
Orly Rose says there is actually a lore reason. And Orly Rose, yes, indeed, this much I, I, I completely agree with. You know, there is always that sort of like Watsonian element of like, why is why was Gandalf gone? I want to talk more about the, uh, uh, oh boy. Starts with a D, right? Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I want to talk more about the Doyleist reason for him being gone. What, what in the, what is it? in the construction of a story uh, that made that a good choice, or at the very least, uh, why make that choice? Um, uh, JT says, because the guy playing that character had to miss a couple of D&D sessions. That is, look, sometimes the dramaturgy of a of a game master <laughs> demands such things. Purdy Spade says, Gandalf is too damn powerful. He gets people out of trouble. This is true, you know? And, and we've seen, if we have, you know, if we are familiar with... Um, uh, the Hobbit, the story, um, then we know that that Gandalf has all of these grand powers, right? And yeah, I think it is possible that some of these. Uh, Proteus Spade goes on to say, uh, "You got to have no Gandalf to have palpable peril." I think that's a pretty solid reason. I think if you wanted to, if you wanted to to have these, like, there are, you know, if if you wanted to avoid the question of, hold on a second, there are four dudes on horses and that's sort of the big villain right now is f i mean yeah they're they've got horses but it's four dudes big the big the big villain of book one is four dudes um if you wanted to avoid concerns such as that then yeah it would have to sort of we would have to have less powerful artillery on our side than great and powerful wizard who we've seen you know set forests on fire and and call to the eagles <laughs> orly rose says that ties into something that uh we would not necessarily know right now yes i think we're going to get to that one as well um sofalov says they would have felt too safe at the start of their adventure and yeah i do think that there is i i think sofalov has touched on something pretty good here which is to say the world needs to feel different it can't just be Bilbo went out to the east and then came running on back and had a whole bunch of treasure. And then Frodo comes running out east and he'll probably find a whole bunch of treasure. It's got to feel different. And part of that difference is, oh, the world has gotten so dangerous that the this terrible danger that you are going through is not necessarily first priority. There are other possibly even greater dangers that must be attended to, or at the very least will keep our powerful people away from this danger. The world has to feel different. And part of that is that we can't just go on the same adventure that we did last time. Uh, and then on the topic of what it is we uh we sort of gained from this chapter what would we call this chapter in six words uh i'm gonna see if i can jam jt's in there because i think jt said this before i ever asked this question but glowing to find out more <laughs> glowing glowing to find out more uh very good. Well done, JT. Um, let me see. Let me see. Okay. Uh, 
Orly Rose says, a deep breath before a storm. Gwendog says, uh, what the pads are like with the rocks in the liver bank. Uh, the liver bank. That's not it. They thought it was over. Nope. <laughs> a couple of good ones there. Yeah, so ultimately, my my sort of view of this chapter comes down to two things in essence. Number one, um, uh, and this is why I asked this. I was just, you know, just, just fishing for it without wanting to give you two options as asking, which of my answers would you give? I wanted, I wanted to hear your answers. And I like these. Um, and I don't know if Gwendog... <laughs> Gwendog, I don't think this is an answer to my second question, but Gwendog does add, my eyes were glazing over. That might have been much more about uh, Shadows Over Innsmouth, but... Um... <laughs> oh, Donk, I get to block some people. Ba-da, 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 da Ba-da, 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 da Oh, Sofalov says, the comic relief in a movie aka a breather um okay so full of another interesting thought so yes i do think um there, there is that as well the, the two that came to my mind immediately were um kind of lots of exposition and hold on lots of exposition and meetings uh and, uh, and greetings we'll say because meetings has its own connotation these days but um lots of exposition and greetings Right, lots of lots of uh, you know finding people. I don't even, could you even call it exposition? Basically, just like, no. There's there's a fair bit of it at the beginning. Uh, so that on one side, and then the on on the other side, uh, the other sort of main tone that I got from it was um, expanding the world with elf lore. And because this is Tolkien, I get to go ahead and portmanteau that sucker. <laughs> This is fantasy, so I get to just sort of slap, slap two words up against one another and stick and uh, you know glue them down with some, <laughs> some silly putty. You get to do that in fantasy; it's great. Uh, the bright water, the Evan Star, Elf lore. I make my own rules. Bah. <laughs> um, so those were the two that really jumped out at me, right? To to make the world feel in a certain way, right? To really emphasize, hey, this ain't the Shire anymore, right? It doesn't matter how like. Doesn't matter what you know, fantastic pub or uh, you know, a beautiful dell you could find in the Shire. None of them are this place, right? None of them could be this place. Look at how different the world can be, and look at how far you've come from home. Um, that was a huge part of it for me. And then, of course, you know, all of this, all of this exposition, all of this sort of like setting up these relationships. It's very sneaky. It's very. It's very kind of a, a magician's trick you know look over here while I do something over here um uh here are here's here's something that where I'm showing you the face of it but the back of it is going to look very different on the face of this we're we're having a lot of like joyful uh what would be reunitions <laughs> reunions goofy goofy ridiculous oh man i'm tempted to cut that out but i'm not going to i'm not going to i feel that would disturb my my credibility many joyful reunions right so we've got that um that's what it is sort of on the face right we're we're seeing oh great bilbo oh uh gandalf but if we turn that around a little bit and look at the other side of this aka sort of like if we if we're about to look at this in in the rear view 
we're also seeing these not as reunions, but as setups, as the relationships sort of setting a standard for the relationships and how they sit right now as we are about to embark upon a new thing. I think there's a good deal of that in there as well. You know, we're, we're about to jump into something new and this is kind of, again, on the face, it, it feels like an end of a chapter, right? It feels like the, the end of a book. It feels like the end of a story. You know, they all sang and danced into the night and the last line is sleep well, right? Good night. I'll take a walk, I think, and look at the stars of Albrith in the garden. Sleep well. That would be, that would be a perfectly good final line for a story. And that's sort of what it feels like at first glance. But again, we know. We know because we're holding this book in our hands and we can see, oh, okay, I'm about halfway through this sucker. I think with that, if we turn this around and look at the look at the rear end of it, um, we can see that this is also setting up these relationships as they will be and as sort of a pushing off point for the remainder of book one, Fellowship of the Ring. So... Those are my thoughts on the matter right now. Um, I would encourage you all to uh, continue this discussion over in uh, over in Discord. If you want the link for that, go ahead and use the links command. Uh, of course, at any time you can pop in that links command, but linktree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. That is the link to follow and that is the link to share. Uh, but yeah, head on through there and you can head on over to Discord. Um, I really like some of these six word descriptions. Um, uh, gotta have that crossover scene, says JT. Uh, yes, indeed, where, you know, we meet, like I said, you know, expanding this, our sense of the world, our sense of what this world includes and encompasses. We certainly got some of that with Tom Bombadil, but he wasn't like, he was not, he, he was such a unique individual, right? When we get here, we are feeling ourselves not only at the home of some very unique individuals, but also at a an an extension an arm a town of a much larger kind of kingdom of 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 you could call it a nation sort of i suppose but really it's just sort of the um the the homes of the elves right there you are you are experiencing a just a little window of a larger culture in a way that you weren't doing with Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil, when you met Tom Bombadil, um, you understood very little about Tom Bombadil, but if you understood Tom Bombadil entirely, it would not give you a greater insight into some other culture in the world, some other group of people. Whereas these elves here, right? We've met these elves and this is, we're coming to an understanding for the first time of how elves live. What is their culture? Okay, so that's four. That's four different cars that have gotten in on this this little shouting match outside. Ridiculous. Um, Sofalove says, like, comic relief in a movie. Uh, Sofalove, yeah, absolutely. There's a great, um, there's a great case to be made that in order for tension to remain, you have to build it and release it. You can't simply build, 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 and then... Um, otherwise, people, people will get tired of it as a matter of fact this is one of my you know i'm watching a couple of shows right now which i really enjoy um uh one of them is called dark and one of them is called uh 1899 both of them are good but i would say that one of the things that i think german tv or at the very least um uh this particular production could stand to learn a little bit is those those smaller arcs within um I'm not calling myself an authority on these things simply as as someone who experiences them. I enjoy them quite a bit. Um, yeah, a chance to breathe. 
a chance to release some of that tension um, and a chance for honestly some of that tension to change the way to, the the chance for the release to change the way that you felt about the initial tension for instance uh the ways in which at the beginning of this chapter frodo talks about how if i'd known all of this before i should have been terrified too terrified even to move or to do anything at all i was terrified as it was but i could have been much more terrified right um having a chance to sort of take a pause here and say you're safe for now but you're gonna have to go back out into it that much right there also brings us to a very scary little place. Uh, and uh, again, it, it sort of primes us better for tension to come. Let's see. What else? There was, a, there was at least one more that I wanted to go over. Um, uh, Orly Rose, a deep breath before a storm. Yes, and I think this one sort of covers a, a very similar kind of uh, uh, tone to sofa loaves, uh, which is to say, yeah, a, a chance to to rest for a moment, both as characters, you know, Frodo and, and Sam and such, but also as readers, you know? Our minds are not, uh, are not sort of primed to go on in one tone, no matter what that tone is. Whether it's stress or joy, either one of those becomes very boring. Um, we, are, we are people who exist uh aware of the passage of time <laughs> we as beings are aware of the passage of time uh and if we sense that a a that's something that we are encountering like a book or a movie or whatever is sort of ignoring the fact that life changes that time goes on if it ignores that then i think we instinctually sort of say like eh, okay all right is anything else going to happen or is it just can i just sort of can I predict every next move because all the tone is the same? There you go, folks. There you go. Everybody, thank you so much for joining me here. I love y'all, and I will see you later on.